follow us on patreon.com forward slash strange bedfellows. You will have to enter that in because the fact that we are adult content means that we have agreed to make ourselves unsearchable on their website. My name is Elle and I'm a sex educator. My name is Jen and I'm a private investigator. We want to learn more about ourselves. I'm like the boring vanilla one over here that's like, I don't do anything, but I'm, cu- I'm curious. And the fact that we're both sex workers means that we have insight into things taboo. Trigger warning, if you're easily upset by this stuff, maybe take a break. I have a feeling this is going to be weird. Sex and politics make for some very strange bedfellows. William Perk is a recovering heroin addict, preacher's kid, black sheep, and he is the author of the book Killing Poppy. He is available for contact at easyperk at gmail.com. Hi, William. Hi, Jen. Hello. 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 So we're having you on to speak about your book, but your book Killing Poppy is largely influenced by your time addicted to heroin, uh, I believe. Yes. And so we'll be talking a lot about substance abuse. Please let us know, William, if we use any inflammatory language around heroin or drug abuse or drug use, because this is something that Jen and I both see in our work, um, and, you know, people impacted by drug use, but we aren't substance abuse um, experts and we don't have, not with heroin, any firsthand experience. So we'll be asking you all kinds of nosy questions. Sure. And you've said, too, you're not a licensed expert in anything. This is, right. This is your life. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about your life. Um, so I think it's very interesting and I'm so glad you brought this up, but preacher's kid, uh, you're the product of two very religious parents, (laughs) right? Yes. Yes. Is there friction between you and your parents today? No. Okay. No, I get along with them well. Okay. What, um, what sect were they? Is that even the right word? Uh, Well, when I was a kid, when, when I was a kid, my dad was, uh, Baptist preacher. Okay. Yeah, uh, Lake Baptist Church in Lake Oswego. Oh wow. Yeah, and then um, and then he switched to non-denominational, and now he's uh, he's he's involved in some churches, but it's it's more into like healing, mm-hmm. side, you know. So okay, so but you did for a while, for a few years, years. For a few years, you were the Save Portland from Hell guy, <laughs> yeah. which Jen, I had to catch her up on. She missed that. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not from here. Can you explain? Originally, <laughs> so explain Save Portland from Hell. Explain what happened. Yeah, it was a performance art, uh, religious satire, and it was really just a response to uh, the evangelical, um, my evangelical upbringing. You know, um, my first stunt was a reaction to my dad. He organized this thing called the Jesus Crosswalk, where him and his church members had these life-size crosses and were walking around Portland to uh, profess their faith or something. And I'd just gotten out of rehab, and I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? (laughs) So I dressed up as a black sheep and... um, like lit- like a literal black yes, sheep. Yes, like a black sheep, and I had to save Portland from hell, and it was it was horrible, and it it didn't really make much sense, but that was kind of the first that was kind of the the start of it. I don't know, knowing a bit a little bit of your backstory, I think that makes a lot of sense. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. So, and that was like 
I mean, that was kind of a catharsis for you probably. Because what was going on in your life? You said you'd just gotten out of rehab. Yeah, I had just gotten out of rehab. I was at Serenity Lane in October of 2013. So, okay. I mean, did that, like... I'm probably projecting here, but did that frustrate you like getting out and you're doing all this work perhaps and then you're like your dad's basically doing this like visual stunt, which I participate in those like slut walk, you know, it's people walking around in their underwear and I see how that can look ridiculous to Mm -hmm. the other side too. Um, But I mean, there was obviously something more motivating for you to do this performance art where you'd show up dressed as this like really intense conservative fundamentalist character. Right. I mean, to elicit a reaction. Mm -hmm. So I'm just I'm like, what was there for you? What was your purpose at that time? Well, it was a very therapeutic process for me. And it was really, I mean, each stunt I did was a reaction to some evangelical move, right? So um, the, let's see here, the, um, the purity pledge hmm. or... Um, Tell um, about the purity pledge. Well, you know, the purity pledges that uh, evangelicals make for kids growing up. Right. About, the chastity thing. Yeah. Right? You have to, don't you have to vow that you'll never have sex until Ex- marriage or something? Exactly. So they actually have these certificates and, you know, in youth groups, they'll have like the kids sign them. <laughs> That's so funny. So I made dark. one, uh, except I made it extremely detailed. Um, what you can't do i think it's still on my fridge yeah. oh really <laughs> yeah. it's it's buried underneath photos of my child because it's like been layered on over years but it's like no rimming licking fisting well, fingering i was about to say i heard that it would that like maybe this is probably a dumb stupid rumor thing i don't know where i'm coming up with this information but i thought i had read somewhere that like anal sex became really popular with like what's underage christians because you're technically still like a vaginal virgin yeah no that's there's a name for that is it saddlebacking or something saddlebacking let me look that up maybe Mm. but no that's definitely yeah you hear that a lot in uh, conservative communities Saddlebacking, the term for the phenomenon of Christian teens engaging in unprotected anal sex in order to preserve their virginities. This is on UrbanDictionary.com. So, yep. Yeah. (laughs) That's a thing. Man, that's so interesting and sad and funny. Look at the the risky behaviors that people engage in in order to preserve some other, like, moral idea, you know? Unprotected anal sex, which is really more dangerous than unprotected vaginal sex because anuses are more likely to tear. They're not really built for like fucking, which vaginas are, but they still have to be lubricated, you know? I just keep thinking about in economics and they talk about like market, like unintended market distortions when you try to enforce a regulation on a market, right? And then all these other unintended bad consequences will pop up like Like, mushrooms. uh, (laughs) Like criminalizing the uh, sale of sex. Exactly. <laughs> and it's the same thing. Like what a weird. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so I believe to possess or distribute heroin. Let's just talk about heroin because that's that was your thing, right? Like that was right. your deal. Yeah. That was your issue, yeah. your Opiate, substance. Opiates and benzos. Yeah. Opiates and benzos. Okay. Did you start with benzos? No, I uh, started when I got my uh, wisdom tooth pulled. I was prescribed Vicodin. So that was my introduction. And then I fell in love with opiates and then. Led into heroin and then benzos was how, um, kind of towards how the old, end. How old were you? Like, when are we talking? Well, I started opiates when I was about 17, 18. Okay. Um, and then I smoked heroin when I was 23 for the first time. And I tried to hold off banging it 
and I did until I was about 29. Banging so, it. Yeah, injecting it. Okay. So, so I it start- was a long progression. Right, and it was off and on. I, I would get clean, and then, you know, uh, you you know, I get strung out. So, What yeah. about, were you, like, drinking or anything uh, I drank or? a lot in high school, but as okay. soon as I discovered opiates, I, I kind of stopped drinking, you know? Because you didn't want to die? Well, I just or? didn't really like it as much, you know? Oh, okay. Like, I, I liked opiates so much, it was just like, why would I mess around with alcohol? Okay. And well, also, yes, yeah, like you were saying, it's extremely dangerous to mix Mm-hmm. You know, I was very concerned about that as well. Mm-hmm. I wanted to use wisely. <laughs> yeah, because the, I mean, the opiates, if anyone listening is not familiar, opiates and alcohol will just stop your heart functions, your yeah. breathing. Same with like... Same with benzos, benzos too. Benzos, yeah. alcohol. Absolutely. And benzos are prescribed for mood disorders. So, yep. yeah, with these introductions to these hard, hard, like dangerous substances that don't really have much um, holistic or like medicinal property... Um, you know, because heroin opiates were used as painkillers and they still are, but oh my God, you know what also is a painkiller? Marijuana. That is true. I mean, it's not going to be as effective for people in like serious pain, but how many, how many parents do you think had no idea that their kid was going to end up on this really challenging road to addiction because they got a fucking tooth pulled? Right. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. with being, trying to be as vague as possible for privilege reasons i mean i would have to say that i would say 90 percent of my clients it, it like their crimes are related to addiction somehow mm-hmm. and even like i have um i have a client who got hooked on heroin who started that path in high school from a knee a cheerleading knee injury wow yeah wow. so yeah it's crazy it's crazy I mean, yeah. so how you said that you technically you feel like you had a relapse some months ago yeah i uh i'd been clean since i got out of rehab which was october 2013 Mm -hmm. and um you know i I was pretty involved in recovery and i really got into nootropics which are like smart drugs you know and a lot of them are really good and Help, like good for your brain. I tried some Hupperzine, I think was one. Really? Hupperzine? I don't know. Yeah, there was so many. It was supposed to be like a study aid. It gave me a really bad headache. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, So I I, I discovered one called Tianeptine Sodium, and it acts as an antidepressant. Where do you stand on sobriety and marijuana use? That's a good question. um, Because I don't know. I used to be involved in 12 step. Uh, 12 step stuff and a lot of it's for alcohol yeah for like booze and coke that was like my thing back in the 20s and early 30s um and now i see like a lot of people i don't know there's been some like facebook dissent on my feed lately about are you still sober if you smoke weed or if it's just cbd i don't know there seems to be a whole Mm -hmm. yeah there's definitely different you know viewpoints on that and i mean I, I don't really like marijuana, so it's not really an issue to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do have CBD, and sometimes I'll use the CBD oil um, for sleep. But, um, I mean, I don't think there's THC in that. But, Mm-mm. I mean, it's so it's not really an issue for me. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting because I know I've seen stuff like that before, and I saw a friend who's battled all kinds of things, um, and she was ranting emotionally um, about having been judged for using marijuana. And she's like, I'm not like shooting into my neck. I'm not like doing this shit in a tunnel like I used to be. Like I'm smoking like a plant that helps me like be a better parent. 
and I was like, wow, people go really hard on you. I'm really sorry about that. I said, do the people give you, that give you a hard time, do they drink caffeine? Yeah. That, no, that's a good point. She's I mean, like, oh my God. As long as you can manage, right? Like if, right. if I could use, if I could use heroin and like manage my life. But people can't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's not the way, you know. Well, so. I mean, I think that's the, the thing. I mean, like I'm still like, I'm, I wouldn't consider myself sober anymore mm-hmm. by any means, but I'm very wary of hard drugs. Like right. I don't, I don't want to take painkillers. I don't, I'm st- I don't want to put that shit in my body because I know that I've had problems in the past with stuff like that. And I'm trying to, trying to live a normal life now, but CBD, at least for me, like I have really bad shoulder problems and CBD helps. Whereas mm-hmm. like, I don't have to take Vicodin, which is mm-hmm. awesome. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, you're, you're managing for the pain which is how a lot of people start using opiates and shit anyway. Um, So we've talked about on this show before in speaking about sexual health, we try to not, well, we don't use the term clean in terms of testing negative for things, but I've noticed you've said it a couple of times and it's definitely you get to because this is your world and your language. But do you feel there's any stigma to the language of getting clean? Yeah, I, I hadn't, I haven't thought about that until you mentioned it. And maybe it's a bad habit that I say that. Um, or maybe not. I don't know. Well, again, I mean, I, have no I, experience. I, I take a lot of, I take psych drugs prescri- that are prescribed for me. You know, I take Zyprexa and, and uh, antidepressant. And so I take prescription drugs. So I think, um, I know I sometimes feel like I'm, I'm judged for some of the prescription medication um, I'm, I'm taking, you know, like some people would say I'm not clean. So, mm, um, I mean, okay. I, it's, it's a, it's a good point. You know, I just, you know, I mean, I can see how, how that, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's also the implication of like, if you're not this, whatever the standard of clean right. is, then you're dirty. Right. Or whatever. Yes. At where I'm, at where I'm going to recovery right now, they say, you know, like I'm illicit, I'm illicit drug free. Right. Okay. Illicit drug free. Yeah. I like that better. Um, do you do, do you do 12, like what, what kind of recru- recovery program do you do do you do like i was involved yeah i was involved or? with a 12-step program and you know i have nothing you know but positive things to say about that and it works well for you know some people um i mean i, th- I think people are able to recover outside of that and find other ways to do that you know but it is definitely you know mm-hmm. let's um i want to talk about the book before we move to break and listener questions but i have another question um because you actually brought some and this is really cool um i'm looking at it, it says narcon nasal spray four milligrams it's a two-pack you said that this is something that can prevent somebody from having an overdose instill one spray in one nostril if needed for opi- opioid overdose may repeat every two and two to three minutes until patient is responsive you said that these are prescription, but pharmacies will sell them over the counter if you ask for them. Yeah, I got this one at Rite Aid, the 24-hour location, and they actually were advertising uh, right up front where they'll give them to anyone. That's they are, awesome. They are, they are prescription, but they'll give them to anyone, and uh, my insurance covered covered it. So it didn't cost me anything, and I keep it in my car, and I mean, who knows? I'm really curious as to what it would cost without insurance because if you're somebody who does any kind of work around this stuff, I mean, these people probably already know this, but hey, if you want to donate something to like a homeless camp, like somebody could probably use these. Yeah, right? Like. Definitely. Oh, that's awesome. And socks. Hey, that's a good question. So we do fundraisers from year to year. Um, What do you think, what were some things that you could have used if they were donated to you? when you were wandering around? Because the portion I read of your book, you were 
<laughs> doing all kinds of crazy shit in the middle well, of the night. Well, it, it's, it's, the character's not me in, okay. the, bo- in the book. Right. But, um, I mean, it's it's hard to say what, what you know. I mean, socks is definitely socks. pretty high up there, mm-hmm. you know. Tarp. What about tarp? It rains a lot here. Tarps, hand warmers. So the character's not you. Right. Because it's a fictional novella. Mm-hmm. Um, what, where did this character come from? So... When I was in rehab at Serena Lane, the uh, project they gave us was to write a goodbye letter to our drug of choice. Hmm. And um, they told us to imagine our addiction as a relationship with another person. So um, I wrote this letter, goodbye poppy, and then I uh, in rehab. And then when I got out of rehab, I continued it. And then I built this story around it with this character. Um, and... It's fiction. It's a fictional story, and it takes place in Portland. But it's, um, I mean, I, I, a lot of my experiences, I kind of, um, you know, pulled are, from. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. If I ever wrote, if I ever wrote a, a story, really, really a story about stripping, it would have to be fiction because right. I would out too many people. And, um, but it, what would it be influenced by? Like, obviously, real shit I saw, and you know, just change some details. Um, okay, I'm really glad that's not true. Is that part about the turtle true? <laughs> no. Good. No, I mean, most, no, like none of it's really true, <laughs> right? Good. I mean, there's I, there's truth to the story, okay. of course, right? Did you watch a turtle die? <laughs> no. Okay, good. Only in my imagination. Okay. <laughs> no. Okay. Like, I mean, the character's, the character's a likable character. You know, um, he's strung out in Portland. He, di- he um, overdoses and he's about to die and this person revives him actually with Narcan and the person is an old man says uh, that he's an angel sent to help him get clean um, and he tries to get, help him get clean but this guy is a piece of shit low life so um, <laughs> what, this guy takes him, yeah exactly so this guy kind of takes him down this path that you know you're not quite sure if it's really helpful <laughs> god i like yeah what i read of it i really enjoyed i want people to read it too so that is killing poppy where is that going to be available well it's available on amazon right now awesome yeah oh and also the street the street artists there's uh there's four st- portland street artists since it takes place in portland mm-hmm. so i just wanted to give a shout out to the street artists that yeah are... please do you said woke face yeah woke face uh she's uh has a few pieces in the book uh sin canvas scam and crace so their street art is featured in the book um and it just adds so much to the story it's just yeah. it's great yeah i get street art is a huge part of this city i'm taking pictures and little snaps of it all the time i think it's really how you can i mean it's what's going on around you well that's awesome all right so killing poppies by william perk and we will be right back attention service and sex industry workers seeking space yoga is dedicated to providing a holistic option for after your shift with new 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. class times. Seeking Space is rooted in empathy, and they've combined creative flows and experienced teachers to provide a safe, inviting space for any and all wishing to find peace on the mat. Need a little motivation? They are offering 10% off on all memberships and packages for those in the industry. Visit SeekingSpaceYoga.com or download the Seeking Space Yoga app for more information and a full list of class times. If you're looking to jazz up a jacket, bag, or just your fine self, our friends at Gimme Flare have everything you could possibly need. 
Gimme Flare is the largest online retailer of pins and patches that range from the cute and sweet to the snarky and slutty. They are sex positive, queer friendly, and aim to crush mental health stigma, all with fun flair from around the globe. Check out gimmeflare.com to browse items from over 250 plus artists. Strange Bedfellows is also brought to you by Black Bulb Podcast. If you've ever wondered about the deeper meaning behind some of today's art, why not hear from the artists themselves? Your hosts, Alex and Ben, collect influential artists of the West Coast to discover how they seek inspiration, how they handle mental health, and how to make a living as an artist in today's digital world. All discussed on Black Bulb Podcast. That's black like the color and bulb like a light bulb. Welcome back to Strange Bedfellows. We have some listener questions. My boyfriend identifies as a recovering porn addict. Is there anything I can do to help keep him interested in me? And is it invasive for me to ask him how he's doing with that? Transparency is always good, you know, um, but... And related to that question, I mean, I'm not sure, I mean, what, what does that look like, right? Right. I guess if there doesn't seem to be any problem in your relationship, if he's not like disappearing into a dark room with his laptop for like hours at a time. Or like hiding in like their office at work, like on lunch hour. Yeah. If it's not impacting their work, if it's not impacting the relationship, I mean, Perhaps formerly it was, and that's why he's recovering. Um, it's not usually, I mean, let's be honest, like there's so much you can see on the internet in just a few seconds. And having shame around anything I've read around porn addiction and still like the facilities and the faculties that are debating porn addiction, they're figuring out now that you can't treat it like you treat other addictions. But what tends to impact people more about the porn addiction is the shame around the porn Mm. and not so much the fact that they're just watching porn. Um, Because I jerked off like three times yesterday and I watched about 30 seconds to two minutes of porn every single time. So to some people, they're like, oh, my God, that's really weird. You watched porn three times in one day. And I'm like, yeah, but I also did a ton of other things. And I was buttressing these things with like, I need some dopamine. I'm going to jack off because I'm sick of writing about rape and domestic violence, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Mine's just like, I'm bored and I don't have a partner to think about. Right. So whatever porn addiction looked like for him, that depends if it was seriously impacting his relationships, like if he was doing... Um, hurtful or harmful things like in mimicry of hardcore porn he's watching that could be impactful but yeah I thought to say I really don't know that much about what porn addiction looks like I mean I think back in the days of your um, I had a friend who had a husband that she suspected had a porn addiction but this was back I think pre-pornhub this was like eight nine years ago when it was hard to get a lot of this stuff for free and he was spending a lot of money on it and that's how she like yeah. it was fucking with the family finances right. now i'm like it's free how are i like what's mm-hmm. the problem what's yeah the problem? it's i mean it really i mean if it's negatively affecting someone's life then you know maybe there's something that should be looked at right but I mean, if there's if it's not affecting someone's life negatively, then mm-hmm. you're also not going to ever be able to try to like, quote, keep him interested on the same level that like porn 
could in the way that it's visually stimulating. Right. Not in the way that it's like emotionally fulfilling and connective, but in the way that it's like I can see dozens of different body appearances, shapes, colors, sizes within minutes. And just how quick it is. Like when I think about... I don't know. I mean, I imagine almost imagine porn addiction to be almost more like a gambling addiction in that it's right. the constant, like the press the button. You're in a loop. Right now. You're you in know? a loop. Yeah. And a lot of times the reasons people turn to addictions based on what I know is that it's not necessarily about what they're doing. It's what they're trying to avoid or disassociate from or distract from. Um, hmm. There is a fun study I was looking at. This is an Australian survey of pornography users um, from 2007. And 58% of the respondents thought pornography had had a very positive or positive effect on their attitudes about sexuality. 35% felt that it had no effect. And 7% thought it had had a negative effect or a large negative effect. So the main positive effects included were feeling less repressed about sex, feeling more open-minded about it, increased tolerance of other people's sexualities, providing educational insights, um, helping people find more identity or community, and helping them talk to their partners about sex. The most common negative effects reported by porn consumers who participated in the study were that pornography led these consumers to objectify people, cause them to have unrealistic sexual expectations, caused relationship problems, a loss of interest in sex, or led to, quote, addiction. Very few of the respondents said that they were addicted to it. Um, given the prominence of public debates, of course, I'm reading from this, uh, the data suggests a mismatch between journalistic concerns about the genre and the experiences of consumers. So they're saying a lot of these studies are very fear-mongering, like, how oh, is I'm porn sure. hurting you? Um, and that is a huge part of the shame that happens in the addiction. That's why people hide it, you know, or not be able to talk about it. So, yeah, if you're not having any of these issues, then just like keep cruising, girl. You're fine. Yeah. And, and also, I, I think maybe it can. I mean, obviously, if there's like meth involved, then it could paint a completely different picture right. or something. You right. Know? Um, or if he's spending a lot of money, like you right. said. Right. I think as long yeah, as long as you're asking and not accusing, right? Too like I, I feel like most people probably don't have a problem with someone inquiring as to your welfare, but mm -hmm. when somebody's like angling or got an agenda on it, you know. Mm -hmm. So I noticed that this and you, mm -hmm. and I know you're a porn addict, Larry. And <laughs> when I got together with B, um, we unloaded a bunch of our personal history, and he had mentioned that he liked doing cocaine at the time that he had done it a bunch because it removed a lot of his social anxiety. That was a red flag for me because I don't like cocaine. I don't want it around me. I've never done it. Um, but I kept that in my mind. And he had said that he didn't really want to do it anymore. He also wasn't partying when we met because you like fall in love and then you spend all your time with that person. Right. So you stop, you stop going out. But about maybe a year after we'd been together and it's, you know, a good healthy relationship. I thought to ask, I said, can I ask, because you had mentioned it when we got together, can I ask when was the last time you did coke? Because you haven't mentioned it. And he really thought about it. And he says, I think, and it turned, it was like, yeah, the last time he mentioned it was like the last time he did it. And I believe that. And if that's not the case, it doesn't really impact me. So if, if it's not bothering me, then I'm not going to worry about it. <laughs> that's what I say to this girl. Um, <clears throat> Jen, can you read this next one? Question two. Yeah. 
The guy I'm seeing had told me of his past, which involved homelessness and drug use when he was a teenager. He's now in his late 20s and has been sober for almost eight years. He says he had been addicted to heroin at the time, but had insisted that he had never shot up. We've been together for about a year, and I found find out that this isn't exactly true. In getting close with his friends and family, it was accidentally mentioned that he had injected in his past. I was really hurt as to why he would lie about that, and he said it was because women had rejected him about it in the past, saying that they didn't want to get HIV or something else. He says that he's tested negative for everything, but I guess I realize that I'm now wondering what else he would lie about. Everything else in our relationship has been beautiful, honest, awkward, but amazing growth in our <laughs> in our elves and <laughs> and <laughs> awkward but amazing growth in ourselves and each other. The whole thing. All right. Everything else in our relationship has been beautiful, honest, awkward, but amazing growth in ourselves and each other. What do you think? Well, people don't react well to things around sex and drugs. So I can see, I can see folks saying like, well, I don't want to get HIV or quote something else because they don't even know what the other something else is. Other high risk ones would be like hepatitis B and C um, with intravenous drug use. I don't know, like how much, it really does make me think how much you're required to disclose and when. I mean, he says he's been tested, that it's negative, you trust that. I mean, maybe he's been waiting to talk about, maybe it's fucking painful to talk about and he doesn't want to talk about it. Or maybe he just doesn't want it thrown back in his face every time you have an argument. Mm. You know, I mean. Yeah. Has that ever happened to you, you know, William? Oh, um, we said I mean, we weren't going to no, talk about no, your dating. No, it's okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I've, I've always been transparent, you know, because um, I I did use IV heroin. Um, I showed up for for quite a while, so um, I just feel like it's respectful just to be transparent, you know. And I haven't tested, um, you know, since. Um, so, but I can definitely understand the. Um, I th- I think it's like fear of judgment, right. you know, mm-hmm. is really. Mm-hmm. Um, if you really, if you really want this, you can request that he ask for a printed copy of his last, um, checkup results. A lot of clinics will do that for you. They'll give you a, I mean, you might have to go in or like present proof of person. I mean, he would have to do this and he would really want to be comfortable doing this. So that might be a sticking point, but Hey, if you said you've had, um, a, like a full STI, STD testing, then could you show me your results? Uh, that could also, I could see how that could make him feel like, well, why don't you trust me? And then it's like, well. Because well, you lied about <laughs> it. I mean, that's why. Yeah, so it could be a little little circle. But if everything else has been good, you can acknowledge that maybe it, it was just really embarrassing. Yeah, I mean, I guess him not telling you because he doesn't want to get rejected. I mean, I don't think that's a good enough reason not to tell somebody. But oh, I do. We don't. Really? What if you like really fell for someone? You're like, this is the person. But right. what if they, you know, if you really fall, then you really think they're the person you're, I think you're probably going to feel more okay talking about it. But at the same True. time, like we don't know why, like maybe it's just really painful to talk about it. Maybe he did. Maybe he was taking advantage. I don't know. I mean, yeah, there could be other stuff that came up for him. There could be other shit that came up for him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's our advice, right? <laughs> like we understand how you got here, but I mean, I'm, not an ivy drug user but i know a lot of people view like sex work the same way and Mm. now that i'm 
now that I don't dance so often, I feel really cagey about like talking to new people about that. And I just, that's one thing I, I, um, when I, I feel like Like the more transparent I am with someone that the less judged they're going to feel about, you know, things they've done or, or, or something, you know? So, um, I think it kind of, just kind of creates a, a judgment-free environment, you know? Mm-hmm. I call it building the nest. Yeah. I'll say that around the house sometimes when I'm <laughs> opening up to be, and I'm like, can can I be in the nest for a minute? Can we just, like, I'm feeling vulnerable. <laughs> Fair enough. I guess I'm just in this weird space. I'm like, a, what do you need to know, and why do you need to know it? Like, well, That's I don't not weird. You've had a ton of negative experiences with people being nosy and asking you hurtful, ignorant questions that they maybe weren't even trying to upset you about, but they don't understand the nuances of your experience. So I understand that being cagey. No. What, um, can I ask you, William, when you, if you meet someone, at what point do you disclose any of your past about this? Um, well, I try not to unload everything. (laughs) (laughs) Cause, uh, so just, I mean, kind of, kind of slowly, but I mean, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty open with my life and my life story with people, you know, there's, there's not too much that I hold back, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, which we're grateful and, for cause yeah, you're on here and it's, and it's hard to say, I mean, it kind of depends what, you know, you have to gauge the person, you know, and, um, how things are going or, you know, I mean, it just kind of depends on the mm-hmm. situation. Do you mainly try to, this might be an invasive question. Do you mainly try to just date other kind of sober people or, or do you try, or do you avoid that? Um, like, well, I mean, when I was involved in recovery, it a lot of people do that, you know, um, and date so- sober people. Yeah. And it, and it, it kind of, um, there, there's kind of a, I don't know, it, it feels nice. Like you don't feel like you're going to be judged. Like, you right. know, like I can meet someone in recovery and I can tell them everything about my drug use and, and everything. And they're struggling with the same yeah, shit Yeah, and they've right? got their own shit. Yeah, so it's 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 kind of nice in that aspect, you know. Mm-hmm. This is why a lot of sex workers um, like to date other people in the industry for various reasons. I mean, like porn stars that marry porn stars. Mm. Or strippers that marry uh, male strippers, <laughs> I know a few. <laughs> or couples that do cam stuff together, yeah, because you don't have to explain all of this shit, right, to and, your partner. <laughs> you know, and a lot of times, if I say something that scares someone off, then it's like, okay, well, if that scared them off, then they're obviously not, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> they're not. It's down. not going to work out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a risk. I mean, anytime you get to know somebody, you risk finding out incompatibilities and that's it. And that's when you kind of have to go your separate ways and realize nothing lasts forever. So try to enjoy the now that's your self help. That's your unsolicited piece of advice for me today. Try (laughs) to enjoy the now. Hey friends, do you get sore muscles or stiff joints like us? How's your skin? Is it dry, itchy, irritated, bruised, or sunburned? If so, it sounds like you need some napalm in your pocket. Nabalm, that's N-A-E-B-A-L-M, is an all-natural skin and body balm handmade right here in Portland. Nabalm products use a base of organic olive oil and beeswax followed by an infusion of therapeutic essential oils, each of which provides all sorts of benefit. Oh yes, and they smell amazing. To learn more, check out nabalm.com or search Nabalm on Facebook or Instagram. 
Passion by Kate is an award-winning resource for women and couples who crave a more intimate, exciting, and fulfilling sex life. Passion by Kate's affirming writing, workshops, and one-on-one counseling help you create a new level of openness and intimacy with your partner without feeling awkward, twisting yourself into a pretzel, or spending hours a day on intimacy building activities. Learn more plus find hashtag freedom and pleasure at passionbykate, that's K-A-I-T dot com. Mention this podcast to receive a complimentary 30-minute counseling session when you purchase any Passion by Kate product or service. Do you have sex questions? Do you want help learning new techniques, communicating with a partner, opening a relationship, or exploring kink? Sex and intimacy coach Stella Harris can help. Visit her office in Portland or connect via Skype to take your intimate life to the next level. Learn more and schedule at www.stellaharris.net or follow her on Instagram at Stella Harris Erotica. All right, welcome back to Strange Bedfellows. Please find us on patreon.com forward slash strange bedfellows and you can listen to the after show where we're going to somehow probably get even more personal and into William's business. Um, so we're speaking with William Perk, author of Killing Poppy. And Jen and I are looking at this article, this study from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and OSHA and National Safety Council. And apparently the second largest industry struggling with opioid crisis is construction. And that Mm. was surprising to me. Um, Do you think it's because like so many construction workers get injured on the job? Apparently, is it like apparently so. So the construction industry has the second highest rate of pain medication and opioid misuse. And this comes after the dun, 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 entertainment, recreation and food business, which is us. Wow. <laughs> I wonder what the sales industry is because it seems like. Oh, sales. Yeah, sales. Like medical sales. Well, just all of it, you know, I mean, because I. Probably Coke. Retail sales or what kind of sales? Well, inside, outside. I mean, I've been in sales most of my life and, you know, especially early on, like doing inside sales. It seems like most of the people I worked with were strung out on painkillers. What's inside sales? You know, like calling businesses over the phone. Cold calling. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Interesting. So I'd be so bad at that. Yeah. Fucking terrible. I tried that job. That's hard. It's it's (laughs) a telemarketer for like a week. Yeah. (laughs) Just mental ditch digging. So uh, Mm. apparently the uh, 2012-2014 study survey from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health found that 1.3% of construction workers are thought to be addicted to opioids or nearly twice the addiction rate for all working adults in the country. So yeah, it says on the job injuries are common and that begins the uh, addiction with prescription intended to help them get back to work. Um, And then they've got money. I mean, I think the trades are doing pretty well right now. I think like construction workers are pretty well paid. So you, you can probably like maintain that cycle for a while before you lose your shit and can't Mm -hmm. work anymore. Heroin and methadone related overdoses um, from 2007 to 2012, construction workers were the highest proportion of these heroin, heroin and methadone-related overdoses in these five years. This is according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And in Massachusetts, a recent report found that one in four opioid deaths involved construction workers. Wow. 
So how do you make the jump? How do you make the jump from from like pill use to mm. heroin? Like what what does that look like? Like Well, I mean, I think it's different for different people, but for me like um I mean, I was doing oxycontins and uh, this was when I was like 23, 24 and then the guy that I was partying with and buying drugs off of he mentioned that he had um I think he 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 called it refined opium. With, a kind, with, with kind of a wink right like interesting oh, it's not he's like he's like you want to yeah you want to smoke refined. some refined opium and i knew what it was <laughs> right but we just didn't talk about it and then i tried smoking it and i fell in love with it so mm. um is the high all right here's it here's gonna be a, mm-hmm. a stupid dummy question and i feel like one that i should remember from my early 20s because i was like <laughs> tried pills and tried heroin um i dabbled but i can't so is there a difference in the high uh are you talking about between like heroin and painkillers yeah well i mean or is it like the delivery system of like swallowing something versus i mean you get the end you get the instant like rush right Right. so that's different like when i'm taking painkillers or you know i'm not going to get that like rush you know Mm -hmm. uh when it hits you so um that's definitely different i mean i like a lot of people escalate their use of things when their tolerance has increased with what they're already using. Right. right. So like instead of smoking like a bowl of weed to get me high for like three hours, I could smoke a whole joint every three hours. And like, that's really at that point I'm like, Oh, I should stop smoking so much weed because that's like, then I would go into, I would escalate into like tinctures or like constantly, mm. you know, but that's me putting a cap on my, my intake. But I realize my tolerance gets to a point. Right. Okay. And that's when it can get dangerous when people start throwing benzos, you know, and that's when it really gets dangerous when you mix it with other stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think this is also relevant to this next article I'm looking at. Um, <laughs> basically, Portland has a huge homelessness population and we don't know what the heck to do about it. Um, this is also a national crisis because there's so many people that are not being taken care of by mental health systems and <laughs> veterans, you know, associations, all this shit. But uh, we're always so fucking eager to be mad at the homeless people. Like, I mean, I get it. It's inconvenient to have somebody shit in your yard or whatever. <laughs> but like, why are we always mad at them first? Um, like I'm mad at Wheeler. Like, where's my fucking tax money going? <laughs> like, seriously, like I'm not like these people aren't like taking my taxes. Like, so apparently, um, recently the Park Rose Business Association, Park Rose is one neighborhood that's been very heavily impacted by homelessness. Business Association. That's all I need to know. They said we are in desperate need of your assistance. Their president said, uh, they say that homeless people continue to relieve themselves, use drugs or intimidate people near their businesses, and the police do nothing, saying their hands are tied. And so Mayor Ted Wheeler has delivered a response saying, the laws will be enforced. I'm directing they be enforced. And so that meaning that they were going to start just sweeping people out, which just moves them, you know, hmm. like pick up all your shit, go somewhere else. I don't know where the heck they're supposed to or go. Or they arrest them. And or they that's arrest them. Fucking exp- I mean, not only is that an expensive process, you, you're paying um, like the salary of the policeman and all the people that help process you on the way into the jail and then paying for you in jail and then paying for you to move through the courts and then you're making it doubly hard for these people to ever get back on their feet because Mm -hmm. you've got drug Mm -hmm. offenses i mean criminal records aside there's certain types of offenses that 
that look worse and disqualify you for things. And There's, anything involving drugs usually like disqualifies mm-hmm. you from doing lots of shit, even if it's just a misdemeanor offense. So mm-hmm. there it's was a, not a solution at all, I think. No, definitely not. Um, I'm just looking at this article, Oregon Live, and it's saying that one in every two arrests made by the Portland Police Bureau last year was of a homeless person. Oh, my yep. God. Oh, my God. That's 50% of the revenue stream. Do you feel safer? No. I feel like I need <laughs> to know, like... find all my mismatched socks and start giving them to these camps. I mean, we need socks. We need Narcan. Well, and it's not a deterrent. It's not cost effective. No. It's not making us any safer from these boogeyman drug addict homeless people that are going to come do whatever. Which, you know, they're being accused of. It's just it's a waste and it's policy that's not working and throwing more cotton you know we need more cops and more law enforcement it's like just throwing mm-hmm. good money after bad and mm-hmm. it's just it's well just, we need to rethink it like it's just not working and then with one of the it's not a tent city but i remember reading there was issue about one of the options given to folks if they needed somewhere to stay but the terms were pretty impossible for a lot of people to meet which was like no dogs allowed um, no smoking, no drugs, no alcohol. So, which if you're hosting a venue, like obviously you don't want these things, but you have to be realistic about who your participants are going to be. And so they didn't want to go. They're like, oh, yeah. no, I'm not going to go there. Give up my dog and like the stuff I need to feel okay. Yeah, sure, there's sure. usually lots of like weird curfews and stuff too, mm-hmm. which seem 10 p.m. curfew, right? To meet. And- yeah, it's very, yeah, it seems pretty infantilizing. Um, so that's why when we talked about in a previous episode, uh, Insight, the Vancouver, BC injection sites where they've been operating for, I think, a decade and they've overseen, what was it, 3 million injections and they've never had an overdose death. Wow, I've mm-hmm. I've been there. Um, it's on East Hastings, I think, is the little district. Have we talked about this mm-hmm. before? I feel we like did I've, a little bit. I've talked about it. Mm-hmm. Um, How long do you think before they bring it here? I don't know. I they, mean, they should. Yeah, they just they've had great success in that area, and they are starting to expand in sites, well, and that's in you know Canada. I hear that one of the problems with having um, supervised injection sites in the states and there was recently oh man i should have put this on the document there was recently like this week like an article about the ex some ex governor of pennsylvania is opening their first supervised injection site and the feds have said actually rosenstein said if you open this we're gonna come down hard on you we're in and this ex-governor was like well fucking bring it then because people are People are dying here, and we believe this is a good way to combat that. So I think the reason it hasn't, I think it does violate some sort of federal laws. And because we have the fucking asshole <laughs> administration asshole? that we have right Oh, all those of them, assholes. Yeah. All of them. But, it's, but particularly like Sessions, like the attorney general. I mean, we have a really like nasty, punitive administration who's not going to look the other way when you try to do some good yeah, it says that right San now. Francisco, Seattle, and Philadelphia are considering opening public health facilities, uh, injection sites, after seeing success of them in Canada and Germany. Germany. All right. Cool. Oh, wow. So there are 100 sanctioned sites that have opened in 11 countries, mostly in Europe, as well as in Australia and Canada. Canada. 
We'll see. It's cool. People are doing good work to push things in this direction. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, there's, you know, places that people can get methadone and Suboxone, you know, that's available. Mm-hmm. Um, which one is Suboxone? Uh, Suboxone is, uh, well, it's buprenorphine. So what do people use that for? Uh, for maintenance. I'm on it, actually. Oh. Right now. Isn't yeah. it something that, like, blocks your Well, the, ability? yeah, the, the naloxetron, uh, which is in the buprenorphine, which makes it Suboxone, it blocks opiates. Um, so even if you tried to get high, it wouldn't work. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Which um, is kind of nerve wracking because I kind of freak out. Like think, I just get paranoid and think if I get in a car accident or something and I'm going to need like painkillers in the hospital that I won't oh. feel like. <laughs> how oh, how wow. long do people typically like go on these drugs? Is it something that you're going to be on forever or just for a period of time? Do they like wean you off this stuff? Yeah. Or? I, I was on it before for a couple of years and, you know, I functioned really well on it. You know, I had a good job and I was able to build, you know, a pretty good life on it, you know. So, um, I mean, I've been on it now for a month and I might stay on it indefinitely. I'm not quite sure, but, you know, mm-hmm. I'm doing fine now. Good. Well, we're happy to hear about it. Everybody um, check out William Perk's Killing Poppy on Amazon now. And you'll see a cute little blurb from me on the back because I was lucky enough to review some of it. <laughs> I'm so glad the turtle didn't die. <laughs> or it's not a real turtle. We don't approve of killing turtles. No. no. I'm still attached no. to the fact that there was a turtle, even though it's yeah. not. There wasn't. It's okay. Just read the book. You'll understand people. All right. So visit us for the after show coming up next on patreon.com forward slash strange bedfellows. Thank you, William and Jen. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, until next time. All right, so let's pause there. It's all good. This is the easiest part. (sighs) For more Strange Bedfellows, check us out on patreon.com forward slash strange bedfellows and become a supporter for access to behind-the-scenes material and extra content. My name is Elle Stanger, and you can find me at stripperwriter.com and on Instagram at stripperwriter. And my name is Jen. You can reach me on strangebedfellowspdx.com. 